from the Department of Surgery at the University of Wisconsin. Welcome to The Set, a podcast that explores the motivations, experiences, and secrets to success from interesting people in and out of the field of surgery. With some humor mixed in, I'm your host, Sir Josh Mesrich, a transplant surgeon, part-time comedian, and somewhat successful fashion model in Madison, Wisconsin, home of the Badgers. The celebrity I most look like is Brad Pitt, although lately some people are saying I look more like Matthew McConaughey since I have been growing my hair out during COVID. All right, all right, all right, all right. When I first showed up at the University of Chicago in 1997, I was more than a little overwhelmed. It is true that I had been to medical school just prior, but you wouldn't have been able to tell that from my general inability to get anything done in the hospital, or even make it to the hospital for that matter. I actually slept through my alarm three times in the first week and came running in late and unshaven. I still remember my chief resident telling me, This is how residents get a bad name, as I ran after him apologizing profusely. Eventually, I got my act together, which did involve buying three alarm clocks spaced around my small apartment and sleeping on the couch so I wouldn't be so comfortable in a bed. I remember looking at all the attendings and thinking, how would I ever be able to do what they did? Like, would there just be some day where I would wake up and have this epiphany? and just walk around with confidence and know what to do with every patient and during every operation? For those students out there listening, the answer is, there is no epiphany, but you still can learn to walk around with confidence. My chairman of surgery at the time was a man named Bruce Gewertz. Now there is a guy who was comfortable in his own skin. When I think about Bruce, I think about a guy who could interact with anyone, from a computer science geek to a rock star to an LA celebrity, and connect with all of them. He could even interact with me, an immature geek rock star celebrity. He has a calm demeanor, a relaxed attitude, empathy, and really listens to what you say. He never seems rushed, always gives you the time and attention you need. And I'm sure he has a lot more going on in his life than I do. I have always thought that Bruce was a guy who has tons of emotional intelligence. A few stories or interactions do come to mind when I think of Bruce. He may not remember them the same way, since with me there is always at least a 50% chance I'm making the story up. No, that's not true. It's more like 60%. I have this memory of scrubbing with Dr. Gewertz late in my intern year on an aorta. I'm not sure how I ended up in there. Normally, the chief resident would jump at the chance to operate with him. But as I remember it, the chief had to go out and deal with an emergency. And there I was, promoted from second fiddle to the lead chair. I'm sure I was shaking, but Bruce was so calm. I remember he was talking to me about flow, a concept I didn't know much about. He would describe it as a complete immersion in a complex activity that is intrinsically motivated by our own talents and interests. He talks about how athletes, musicians, surgeons, and others train intensely to reach a superior level of skill. And once they get there, they describe a sense of clarity, serenity, even ecstasy. I can tell you I had not achieved a superior level of skill. I was mostly afraid he would make me tie a knot on the aorta we were so skillfully sewing, and I would definitely do some damage to the serenity he might have been experiencing. I also remember that during this conversation, the phone was ringing, my pager was going off, residents were coming in to tell me about consults I needed 
to see once the case was over, and he calmly explained why I would not be able to reach a state of flow with all these distractions and that we needed to change the system to accommodate this. That sounded good to me, but I was barely listening because at that moment I had just thrown my fourth knot on the proline suture holding the aorta shut and noticed with horror that the second knot I had thrown had enough air in it to allow the insertion of a finger. This inspired me to utter a different four-letter word, starting with the letter F, that is sometimes associated with ecstasy, but I think in a very different setting. But this is a family podcast, so I won't repeat it. Don't worry, Dr. Gourds f- calmly fixed my indiscretion. The second thing that comes to mind is the movie The Fugitive. It's not that Bruce looks like Harrison Ford. He doesn't. Back then, I would say he looked most like Tom Selleck. He had the exact same mustache, and he always wore Hawaiian shirts and flip-flops and drove a Ferrari around town. That's all true, other than the Hawaiian shirts and flip-flops and the Ferrari. But the reason I think of The Fugitive is that the movie is based on Bruce Gewertz. He was always looking for a one-armed man or yelling, find the one-armed man. No, I'm lying again. But he was actually in the movie. And he even had a speaking role. He was also the guy who stood in for Harrison Ford and fell backwards off that cliff next to the dam. Okay, he didn't do that either. But he was in the movie. And he became close friends with Harrison Ford. In fact, I remember that his loop said Dr. Richard Kimball on the side. And it was a well-known story that someone walked into his office at the UFC and Harrison Ford was sitting in his chair. In a little-known fact, Tom Selleck was actually supposed to play Kimball in The Fugitive, but couldn't get out of his Magnum contract. So perhaps this is how Bruce got the part. I'll ask him about that. Bruce Gewertz is now, well, a lot of things. He's the chair of surgery and surgeon-in-chief at Cedars-Sinai Hospital in Los Angeles. He is vice president of interventional services and vice dean of academic affairs. He loves to research human factors in clinical performance, and the importance of emotional intelligence in personal and professional development. He writes about burnout. He has been touched by illness himself, an experience that has enhanced his ability to be a better doctor. He published a best-selling book on physician leadership. He gives talks and consultations on hospital systems all over the country. He is involved in supporting innovation and plays a role in a VC firm investing in new ideas and devices. So like I said, a lot of things. But most of all, he is a warm, empathetic, caring person who has supported so many young up-and-coming surgeons who tie big old air knots like me. Okay, Bruce Gewertz, welcome to the set. Uh, Thanks so much, Josh. It's great to talk to you and great to see you. I'm just so excited to have you here. Um, I think when I first took over this podcast, you were one of my earliest thoughts of people to talk to, and uh, it is so great to reconnect again. Well, I, I've, I've really enjoyed listening to him and, and uh, obviously really proud of you and Gretchen and delighted to chat with you. Fantastic. Well, why don't we get started uh, just starting with where it started with you? Where did you grow up? Where did you go to school? And tell me about your path uh, getting into, you know, getting from where you grew up to medical school. Well, I was uh, born in Philadelphia. My dad was a <clears throat> mathematics teacher. Uh, first at an inner city high school for many years, and then at the uh, Masterman School, which is the School for Gifted Kids in in the public school system in Pennsylvania. He worked many jobs, uh, principal of a Hebrew school and ran a day camp and uh, pieced together a a nice middle-class existence for us. I grew up in a suburb of Philadelphia called Havertown, uh, which was a new place at the time, and uh, went to public school there. And probably the, the single most influential element in my life was a chemistry uh, teacher there who uh, 
decided that it might be a good idea for me to look at National Science Foundation programs uh, between my sophomore and junior year of high school. And he got me this book that was sort of a pamphlet of all these National Science Foundation programs for high school kids. And I was accepted at one at, at then Hahnemann Hospital that was run by a retired heart surgeon who you know as uh, Victor Satinsky, the inventor of the Satinsky clamp. Oh my gosh, I, I don't know him, but I know that clamp so well. <laughs> yeah, so Vic Satinsky was one of the most interesting people uh, you could ever meet. He was a boy genius, a musical prodigy who uh, in the army in either World War II or the Korean War did some of the first cardiac surgery procedures. And then when he uh, got out of uh, the army, he trained in the fledgling field of cardiac surgery, invented the Satinsky clamp, uh, which is ingenious, of course, and then either had a heart attack or a nervous breakdown in the operating room. Oh, my gosh. And he stopped operating and became a mentor for troubled college kids who had dropped out of school but were very smart. And he started a program on that. And then he also started a program of gifted uh, high school students. So in the summer, I got to uh, be, I was assigned to a, uh, a lab of a, a neurosurgeon named Jules Osterholm, where I was literally doing tree finds in, in, in cats and measuring the uh, water uh, the content of traumatized brains in cats and seeing what osmotic uh, things we could do in CSF and blood to, to lower the water content of edema after swelling. Anyway, it was heady stuff for a 15-year-old. Uh, and the next year, uh, I was planning to go back to that program, but Vic Satinsky took me aside and said, look, why don't you go to one of these other programs around the country? So I... I uh, applied for and got in a program at Roswell Park at, in Buffalo, New York, where I was uh, assigned to a laboratory where I was given the hopeless task of cannulating the thoracic duct in rats and getting the lymphatic fluid and then giving people, pass, giving rats, uh, passive immunity. I, I, after about two weeks and untold numbers of fatalities in rats, I was actually able to figure out how to do it with a little microscope that I put over the rat and whatever, people from all over the institution were coming to watch me cannulate the thoracic duct. And they would bring me into their lab like a relief pitcher, and I would cannulate the thoracic duct of their animals. The reason that is, is sort of funny is the surgical resident, who was an older person from uh, some Asian country, said, well, Bruce, you're interested in surgery. Why don't you come to the operating room? So at the end of the, the summer, I got taken to the operating room and they, they cut somebody nearly in half to go in there and do some kind of major GI exoneration on them. I couldn't believe how easy it was compared to cannulating <laughs> of rats. And on the way out of the door, Arnold Middleman, who was the head of GI surgery at Roswell Park, was leaving. And the resident said, well, Bruce has been in the lab all summer. Is it okay if he takes out the appendix? And Middleman thought I was like a resident from the University of Buffalo or something. He said, sure, no problem. So I took, <laughs> I was 16 years old. And I, I took the appendix out and uh, it, it was unbelievable. And of course, there was no cell phone cameras at the time or I would have had a great remembrance. But when I got done, I, I, I called my parents up and I told my mother I took out an appendix. And she said, boy, the appendix must be really small and a rat. <laughs> I said, well, no, it, it actually was in a person. 
and my parents said nothing for the rest of the call. <laughs> they I mean, you you actually could be one of the youngest people in this country to have done an appendectomy. <laughs> no, I don't think that any institution wants that bandied about, but it was, talk about a transformative moment. I mean, it was unbelievable. And uh, it just seemed so natural given the, you know, summers I had hung around doing research and, you know, hanging around hospitals, that that was the next step. So that, that probably, that, you probably never let go of the idea of being a surgeon at that point. Is that right? That was the... Yeah, that, that was absolutely it. I, I, you know, I liked things like cardiology and gastroenterology and stuff, but it was basically what field of surgery was I going to go into. And it was also this incredible desire to get there as fast as possible, to get to the operating room and get to operate. So a friend of mine had been in this accelerated medical program at Penn State and Jefferson the year before, and he was like a big brother to me. And uh, so I applied to this program, and it was it was an incredible thing. I mean, they selected you to go to medical school after one year of college without any interview. So they just looked at your grades, and they picked 25 kids, usually from Pennsylvania, most of them. And we went to Penn State for um, summer, fall, winter, spring, summer, and got all our science classes in. And then we went to medical school. Oh, wow. So I, I knew you had gone to an accelerated program. It really was this motivation because you knew you wanted to get in the OR and you were doing the fastest maneuver to get there. That was absolutely it. And, you know, I was a you know, aspirational basketball player with no talent. And <laughs> so some of my, some of my friends were you know, going off to play Division One sports, and they were going to play in big stadiums and, you know, effectively do a grown-up person's job. And I, I couldn't do that because I wasn't any good, but I did want to, you know, get out there and actually do something. I, I didn't want to be constrained by being in training or I, I just was so highly motivated in retrospect, I can remember by getting there and doing it as fast as I possibly could. That obviously worked for you. Do you recommend that to other people? Or it has to be very specific people that really know what they want at an early age. Yeah, absolutely. I, you know, the program itself, actually, which I've remained in contact with, and uh, I do mentor some of the students, is now a seven-year program itself. So, so I think everyone has concluded that maybe five years wasn't such a great idea. Having said that, for me, on balance, it worked. Although there were times when I felt distinctly immature compared to my colleagues. Like when I started medical school at age 18, uh, I was just totally immature. I mean, these were grown men and women. You know, some of the guys had wives and kids and, you know, I was 18 years old. And then the other time my immaturity hurt me was when I started my internship and residency at the University of Michigan when I was 22. You know, I was just flat out immature as compared to the other people that I was working with. You know, it's funny, I, um, I, I think most people think I remain immature because of my ridiculous sense of humor, but I have always said that maybe the, the goal of college and even medical school are really to reach the maturity to be able to then take care of people in illness who need you. You know, like, I, I think as important as learning the language or some of the basics of the science of medicine, it's really a chance to mature and get to a point where you can then take on that role of caregiver. It's unquestionably the case. And uh, I got to tell you that the, the one of the more interesting things about my career has been, despite the fact that I've been doing this for nearly 50 years from medical school, 
is I continue to learn. <laughs> and I don't know if, if maturation, you know, I don't know if someone my age can mature, uh, but certainly uh, there's still plenty to learn about how we interface with each other and how we can make this, uh, this trip that we're all taking a little bit more uh, rewarding. Now, you had a, a pretty meteoric rise, at least from the outside, from, I guess, really from a 16-year-old doing your first appendectomy, you know, to becoming chairman at University of Chicago. Let me ask you this. When you were a resident at Michigan, were you thinking like, I want to be chairman or were you just like, I just want to be great at operating? Like, what was your mindset at that point? Initially, I, I was planning, my, my whole life was uh, uh, sort of a, an homage to the movie MASH. And I was going to become a general surgeon and and go to New England and, and be the general surgeon of a town. And uh, when I went to uh, Michigan, I got the feeling, well, geez, maybe I could actually contribute, you know, at some level to academic surgery. And when I got there, within two years, I was so enamored with the people that were mentoring me and the whole nature of academic surgery that, uh, yeah, I wanted to be a chairman. I, I felt like my personal skill set, uh, which I would describe as being a point guard, was the right personal skill set for, for jobs like that, which is I really enjoyed uh, helping other people get the ball uh, in the basket. I liked being the one to distribute the ball to people in the right place of the court so they could use their skills. You know, I was very confident of my own abilities and I was very definitely ambitious, but I was ambitious to be part of a team that was successful. Uh, much more than I, I wanted to be hanging out with great people that would both make me greater and that I could contribute to their success. And somehow, I'm sure that was a reflection of the people who I saw around me who were doing exactly that. Mm -hmm. I love that you brought up MASH. I, I, I tell people that 90% of why I became a surgeon is I wanted to be Hawkeye Pierce and would tell people I was going to be a meatball surgeon, um, which I still like to say I am. Um, I love how he used, you know, humor as his coping mechanism. And he clearly was a, a team player. I suppose drinking from the still right before they operated was not <laughs> what we would do now. But that show was really powerful, I think, for you and me. Uh, and I, I saw you've written an article using that as a basis for leadership that maybe we'll get into a little bit later. But let me just get through this part. So you, once you finished residency, you did a stint in Texas where it sounds like you operated like a maniac. And I used to joke that, I mean, everyone of your era had to do a stint through Texas to like really get those cases in. And then you came to University of Chicago. Why did they recruit you? What was the reason you went over to Chicago? Parkland and Southwestern was fantastic. And I went there because my chief at Michigan became the chairman of surgery there. And he was an amazing guy. And when I got there, I found that I had gone there because of him and because Parkland at that time was such an ascendant uh, place because of selected readings and general surgery. Everybody knew about the place. And there was an amazing amount of trauma to do as well. And uh, that's where Kennedy uh, was taken when he got shot, right? Yeah, very famously, Kennedy and Oswald was taken there two days later. I mean, it was the place, right, for trauma. And many contributions, meaningful contributions in trauma came from there. And, and the faculty there uh, welcomed me and were great mentors to me and, and uh, some great people there. The problem was it wasn't set up for vascular surgery. It was a county hospital. There was no private area. 
Uh, I would I would occasionally get a referral of a prominent banker or something, and they'd put him in a room with a bank robber chained to the bed or something. <laughs> so, right. so it just it just wasn't working out, and and they were building their Zale Lipschey Pavilion, which was their private hospital. But I was literally by that time already chairman of surgery at the University of Chicago. By the time the thing was open, but anyway, uh, what happened was I I uh, I needed to. Uh, to, to broaden my horizons, my decision to go there was not a good one. It was based on on my mentor, and it wasn't a good place to develop in vascular surgery. It was a great place to develop as a general surgeon, trauma surgeon. Chris Ahrens, who was a uh, colleague of mine in Michigan a couple years ahead of me in the residency, had gone to the University of Chicago with Dave Skinner, and Dave Skinner and Chris offered me a job in Chicago, which I... Uh, I, I was enamored by the University of Chicago. Dave Skinner was an incredibly charismatic uh, leader. He was he became chairman at, of surgery at Chicago at age 37 from Hopkins. Chris had been a friend of mine uh, in, in residency, so I went there. And uh, I, it was uh, it was a difficult move because the place was uh, unfriendly. Uh, Dave had many positive characteristics, but. His uh, primary vision of this, and we talked about it a lot later, was he set a level playing field and let these guys slug it out. And there were people like Tom Demeester and Babs Musa and uh, Frank Stewart and and some very uh, very tough, I thought, tough guys there. And and uh, even though I mean, if if somebody was a GI surgeon and I'm a vascular surgeon, that didn't matter. They they saw me as detracting from their spotlight. But luckily, a couple of them shuffled off, Musa particularly, to San Diego. Uh, you know, the climate sort of eased up a little bit. And then, unfortunately, David left to become president of, of where you went to medical school. Right. That's right. I remember him. Was, yeah. was he still working when you were there? He was not really. I think he was more in like a titular role, if you will. But like he would come around occasionally and he was clearly respected greatly. He, had a, he probably had some leadership role in the institution, but no clinical appointment. Yeah, well, he was the president of New York Hospital, and he put the merger together with Columbia. Yeah, so that's how I ended up at Chicago. And and uh, after a, a rough start, where I wondered what I had done, uh, because I went from this nurturing, loving environment where every afternoon we found ourselves having a drink together at the end of the day to Chicago. But the thing that was great about Chicago was the intellectual atmosphere. So the I was literally sitting in my office wondering why I'd come there and saw all my stuff in boxes. And I got a call from a brilliant physiologist named Leon Goldberg, who basically, uh, with his grad student, uh, discovered dopamine. And Goldberg called me up and said, you know, I reviewed one of your papers for the American Journal of Physiology, and I couldn't believe that a surgeon was interested in this. And why don't you come and work with me? And I have a graduate student from Karolinski for you. And that was that was the University of Chicago, and and I would go to the Quadrangle Club for lunch by myself because they had this big table that faculty could just sit at. And one day I sat at that table and sat next to Saul Bellow and an astronomer that had won the Nobel Prize, and they talked to me like I was a human being. And I I, I was just couldn't I had to pinch myself to to believe that that. I was a faculty member at the University of Chicago. Yeah, that sounds amazing. How long were you there before you came chairman? And how old were you when you became chairman? Yeah, so I was there for 11 years. After about seven or eight years, I was getting offers to look at jobs. 
the chairmanship at USC and the chairman job at, at Stanford, both of which I was very interested in and did not get. But when I was 36, Sam Hellman, who was the dean, made me something called the faculty dean for medical education, where I ran the curriculum of the medical school and learned many valuable lessons, which is if you're, quote, running something, you really want to make everybody else think that they're running it. And uh, I learned that lesson painfully, but well. And, and then at age 42, I became chairman of surgery. 42. So I guess that was uh, old for some of those uh, 30-ish year olds, but still ridiculously young to uh, take that leadership role. Was it challenging being younger than many of the people that were working for you or, or that wasn't an issue? It was a leadership characteristic that I was naturally ready for, which was the servant leader. You know, all the section chiefs were older than me. And basically, I took the attitude that that uh, I would help them achieve their vision. So George Block, Frank Stewart, Bob Karp, whatever, they were all very senior. And and for some reason, whether it was just BS or whatever, they accepted that I had the, for lack of a better thing, the interpersonal skills to help them get ahead. And that, you know, they would get, you know, uh, vociferous or angry and not succeed at an institutional level. And they felt like, for whatever reason that I had, you know, the ability to uh, to help them succeed at an institutional level. And, and again, I was very respectful of their uh, subject matter expertise. So if, if the head of orthopedics, Mike Simon, told me he needed this, that, and the other, I didn't spend my time arguing with him. I, I spent my time figuring out how we could together get it. You know, Bruce, when... Um when people ask me to like describe, you know, what is emotional intelligence? And this has been for years. I've always thrown in your name as someone who like struck me as someone who really got that. And one of the things about you I remember well, and I'm not just saying this uh, to kiss your butt because you're on my podcast, but it really is true. Like I always felt even from my intern year when I knew nothing, you know, beyond when you would, when you talk to people, you really focus on them and make it seem like you have all the time they need. And this is the only thing you want to be doing. Like that was my sense with you. And I'm sure you had a million things to do. Were you, did, is it, was this like learned behavior or were you always born with, with this kind of sense of people? Like how much of emotional intelligence is learned versus how much of it is innate? Yeah, well, I think that, you know, people have their own personalities and characteristics. Uh, and, you know, I, it's very kind of you to say say that. And I, and I do warmly appreciate it. I think it is a learned task as, as well. And, and uh, we can all maximize our personalities, you know, uh, by, by thinking about it. I think one time I was given a talk at the University of Virginia and I, on emotional intelligence. At the end, some medical students said, Dr. Gortz, how did you learn all this? And I said, you know, I just got tired of apologizing for being such a jerk. <laughs> and, and I do think that that was true. I, I think that obviously, like all of us, I, I come up short uh, many times uh, still. Uh, I, I've noticed that, you know, I don't end conversations particularly well. I, you know, when the conversation is over, I turn around and look at my screen and wait for the person to leave my room, right? <laughs> uh, and, and that's not right. But I do have an innate curiosity about everything. And that's why I love, you know, uh, my iPad, because I can be watching a sporting event or a movie and I want to learn more about the, you know, actor or the player and I can just quickly access it and learn. So. I think if I do listen, which I, I hope I do and can always improve on, 
It's because I'm curious. I'm curious about what I can learn from from someone else. And uh, those lessons uh, were unfortunately painfully learned. One time, I'll never forget this. I was uh, on a a subcommittee of the AAMC. Oh, no, no, I'm sorry. It was the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. And I I was uh, involved in a grant there that used multiple medical schools. And I was... uh, sitting there at a meeting and, and I would interrupt people when they were talking. And somebody said to me, are you going to let me finish? And I was so shamed uh, because I knew they were right. You know, I was the kid that just couldn't stop from, and I'm sure you felt the same way. You know, you, you just wanted to raise your hand and answer the question. Uh, I painfully and slowly learned that it was better to wait for other people to talk and finish and let them finish. That lesson was gained late in life. Are you someone who has a a big temper that you have to hold back or have you always been a calm person? You struck me as very calm, but like, I don't think I ever pissed you off either. But <laughs> You sure didn't. Except I didn't dictate any of my charts or anything. <laughs> I uh, had a temper when I was a kid, particularly in athletics. And then I got it under control and I don't feel like that's a, uh, what's a challenge for me right now. You know, I, I learned something from boxing uh, in addition to getting my ass kicked on a regular basis, but but I, I learned in boxing that if you get mad, you're done. You are, you're finished, right? So if somebody tags you and you, you get angry, you're going to get many more shots. I, I learned that trying to remain uh, in control and, and understanding things as objectively as possible, whether it's in an interpersonal relationship or uh, in, a, in an athletic event, uh, is, is going to get you a lot more than, than losing your temper. And I think that that's been been helpful. And uh, once I saw that I got better results by being calm and not throwing my golf club or not yelling at somebody, things have gone better. Yeah, I think that's right. I always, I always tell my, this is a little bit different, but I always tell my trainees and younger colleagues, like, you got to really pick your battles. There is no reason to get fired up or dive in the fray about something that really doesn't matter. It's not affecting patient care. It's not worth losing your cool over. Well, that's so insightful. You know, in all the meetings that I have with people, uh, whether they're a high level executives that I work with or uh, people uh, who are uh, lower in the hierarchy, the, the most important thing about 95% of the meetings is not so much the outcome as it is the relationships. They're very, to your point, there are very few things that are existential in nature that you can't compromise on, that you can't, you know, and, 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 you know, you can, you don't have to win every battle to win to, you know, to get to where you want to be. And people that need to win every battle to validate themselves, I think rarely get ahead and really rarely contribute to their institutions because people intrinsically avoid them. And, and you want to be someone that people want to gain your support and because your support is meaningful and valuable to them. Now, I've had the opportunity to read a lot of what you've written. You've written a lot, so not all of it, and to watch some of your talks. And one I really enjoyed, or the part of it I saw, was I believe it was a University of Arizona medical school graduation speech, maybe around 2015 or something like that. And you uh, ended by saying, quote, that I'll mangle, but nevertheless, you said, your profession is a noble one but not a passport to personal fulfillment. And you talk uh, beyond that about that fulfillment, I think, is attainable, but not without work. You've also written a lot about happiness, 
um, which I think is has a lot of similarities to fulfillment. I wanted you to talk more about that. I think it's absolutely right. Like, there's no question being in medicine is noble and it can be very wonderful, but it on its own clearly doesn't get everyone there. Yeah, well, you know, I, I think that when I was young, I, I felt like, you know, I was doing the Lord's work and I was saving lives. And, and you know, therefore, when I was out in the few hours I had outside the hospital, who could tell me what to do and just leave me alone and I'll do do whatever I want, right? You know, after a while, you realize that sometimes we we don't always help people as much as we think that we do. And you, you get a humility about what we do uh, and, and, you know, comments that you've made about, you know, transplanting patients who are alcohol dependent and giving them a new liver. I mean, you know, we can only do so much and, and so much is what they do. And, and, and there's also fate that gets involved, right? I, I've learned to be a little less arrogant about, you know, the difference I make in, in, in my uh, medical practice. And I've also learned that that uh, it's a simple, um, simple path to to sort of happiness, which is to avoid all but un- but absolutely necessary conflict and do more of what you like to do. Whether that's at work, uh, figure out how you can maximize the amount of time at work that you do things that you love, or, or it's outside of work to maximize the things you do that bring you satisfaction. You know, it gets into the very mundane area of time management. I think so many of us know that there are things that we love to do, whether it's to write or to play an instrument or to exercise in some way. But if you don't make time for it, it's not going to get done. And and in order to to be a, a, a partner to your spouse or a parent to your kids, uh, you have to have uh, the proper balance and you have to be able to do things that bring you joy as an individual. All of medical training historically has been a postponement of gratification. And, and uh, I don't think that serves us particularly well. We, we can be extremely hardworking and extremely uh, devoted to what we do and, and serious about what we do. But to do that at the expense of the things that bring you joy is, is a short-sighted strategy. I mean, happiness is not a given, nor is it a constant. You have to work at it, right? And a lot of it is being really honest uh, or insightful about yourself. Do you agree with that? Yeah, I think that, I mean, that's the, the magic word, right, is having the, the inclination to, to be insightful about your relationships, about how you spend your time, about what brings you joy. And, you know, you don't want to get into an endless na- navel-gazing sort of mentality where you're, you know, analytic 100% of the time. But if you have a bad interaction with a, a person and, and you don't sit there and think, boy, how could that have gone better? What could I have contributed to making that go better? Uh, whether it's with our, our spouses or our kids or, or whatever, uh, you're just going to endlessly repeat that loop. You have to have the degree of humility to understand that you're not always going to behave intuitively in the, in the right way. Uh, and, and you want a post-action analysis like you would after a complication to understand so you don't do it again. When I was operating a whole lot, and uh, I, I would uh, like after the surgery to to turn to the fellow or the resident and say, "Well, what did we do right about this operation?" You know, we were down in the pelvis trying to dig through all those adhesions, and and instead we just decided that we would just pick one area higher up where it was clean and try to sneak in and and clamp the aorta through that. You always uh, one other point that that I feel that we often miss as surgeons. Uh, given our uh, educational paradigms, 
is we never feel good about the things we do right. You know, we, we, we remember our complications. We dwell on those complications. We feel badly about them. But when you're in the depths of that, you never think of, you know, all the good things you did. And, uh, you know, I, as I've gotten older, I've learned to take pleasure in when things go right. Take credit. Enjoy it. That's great advice. I, that's one thing as a student I didn't quite understand is how hard the complications would be to deal with. And it's probably part of my personality. But I always thought like you'd train really hard. You'd have this epiphany. You'd get really good at surgery. You'd always know what to do. Of course, you'd get complications, but you'd know you were doing things right. And I've been amazed with how hard they can be to deal with and how you can dwell on them. And we all need kind of coping mechanisms to deal with that. I'm married to a surgeon who, of course, you train and know very well, and we'll often take turns, you know, lying in bed talking about <laughs> what we what we did wrong in a particular case. Actually, it's funny, Gretchen learned a while back, I had some case and I was bummed about what happened. And she was like, huh, I wouldn't have done it that way. And she realized how oh, that wasn't what I wanted. So now she'll say, do you want my comments as your wife or as a surgeon? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, you're both great surgeons. And you know, I will say this, and this may not make you feel great, but I found that complications are harder to accept the older you get because you know the implications of it. You know, you know, you know what that's going to mean to that patient in the future, and you'll also know what it means to that widening ring of uh, impact around the patient to their families, etc. I, I remember watching the Kevin Spacey, Bobby Darren movie. And it was right before I was moving to Cedars, and I knew uh, that he had died from cardiac surgery at the old Cedars Sinai. And so I was watching the movie with some interest. And then when he died, I was I was overcome with emotion because I realized that every patient that I had operated on who had died, you know, left a wife and children, and you know, and and you know, I think that honestly, I think it gets harder the older you get because we do bigger things and people expect more of us when we're senior. And worse yet, you know the implications of the complication. Right. I'm not surprised to hear you say that. I, that's actually, I was going to ask that question and I've you know spoken to quite a few senior surgeons who have told me that you, it doesn't get easier and in some ways it's more painful. I'm curious to ask you this. I spent some time with Tom Starzl before he died, who's of course the father of liver transplant and maybe all of transplant. Um, you know, took on maybe the hardest, one of the hardest operations and made it work, dragged it, kicking and screaming to reality. You know, I don't know him well, but I've read a lot of him and spent a couple of days with him. And he wrote that he actually always hated the act of surgery. He, he couldn't eat before it. He would be nervous. He f didn't want to fail. But And he also had this incredible memory where he could not forget anything about everything that went wrong, the families of the people. Like he honestly was a tortured soul in that way. I still think he liked, he loved being a surgeon, but he, he also wrote this other thing that I thought was really fascinating. He wrote that surgery is too difficult to say it's fun, but it's incredibly satisfying. How, what is your relationship with surgery? Clearly as a 16 year old, you became fascinated. You knew nothing about what could go wrong and I'm sure your appendix did great. Do you describe it as joyful, as satisfying? Like what is your sense of that? Yeah, well, you know, the, uh, as I've done less surgery, you know, when I used to do 350 cases when you were a resident, now I do more like 100 <laughs> cases, right? And most of them are carotid, so it takes, you know, an hour and a half. So I'm not spending as much time. But 
But the point of it is to to your point about Starzl, he and I are incredibly different. But I do worry a lot more going into surgery because I, you know, it's sort of like I look at my house and if if my wife leaves something near the steps, I know I can trip over it or she can trip over it, right? But when you're young, you think, oh, I'll never trip over it. I'll see it and I'll step over it. So when you become an older surgeon, you've seen everything get screwed up. You know that if you leave the room and the, and the junior resident is putting in big 2-0 proline stitches in the abdominal wall, they can indeed stick it in the bowel. When you're young, you think, ah, oh, that'll never happen. So I think that going into the surgery, I feel more, um, I know I can do the surgery, but I, I know that stuff happens that that maybe is beyond our control. So I, I think about everything. I think about everything. When I'm in the surgery, I'm, I'm definitely in, 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 a, in a flow state, you know, that uh, you commented earlier, where I, I you know, I, I'm working with somebody else who's good and we're having fun and we're interacting in a positive way and we're doing the Lord's work. And, and it's something that I've trained for all my life and I've probably done that operation a thousand times and, and I know I can do it. And I've also learned that if you do things right in the operating room, uh, things generally go well. It's the it's that stitch that you should have put in that you decided you weren't. And I always say that, you know, on a Friday afternoon, if I'm doing a case and maybe the, the needle hole didn't really need a stitch, but, you know, I, I don't mind putting a pledge of stitch in there so I can be sure that Friday night is going to be just fine for me. I want to take them back. I'm sure you've lived through that. So... I find more anxiety before surgery and less uh, afterwards as I've gotten older. Interesting. Don't take this the wrong way, but I, I guess I, you've been doing this for a long time. I'm not, I'm not aging you or dating you or anything, but I, I guess I'm surprised you're still doing it. You've done a gazillion, you know, carotids, but you still, you still like to do them. You have so many other things in your career. You obviously could stop operating. That's not something you that ever occurred to you. No, you know, I, I look. There's. There is going, you know, there is going to be an end to this, and uh, I will uh, sometime, I'm sure, in the next two or three years, stop operating. I've stopped doing certain surgeries because they've sort of gone away, right? So one of my things was thoraco open thoracoabdominal operations, and thanks to the tremendous endovascular advances, they've largely gone away. Plus, I I brought Ali Azizadeh here from uh, Houston, who's fantastic, and you know, and and he's young and he's great at open thoracoabdominals. And but like a carotid endarterectomy, I just can't envision that I'll ever get tired of doing that. And and you know, it's just such a precise, beautiful uh, operation. And I've literally done I don't know. 13, 1400 of them. I mean, one of the things that I think about when I think about stopping surgery is, first of all, I don't think that you should be surgeon in chief and chairman of a department of surgery if you don't do surgery. I just don't think you should. I mean, I could do some other job, I guess, but but not that those jobs and not do surgery. Because you need to be in the operating room. You need to to uh, understand the problems that your staff and, and employees face in the operating room. And unless you're there, I just don't think you can do it. There, there's still, I, I love to play golf and, and there's nothing I'd rather do than put a peg in the ground and put, put a ball on it and get ready to play golf with my friends. But more than that, I love doing a carotid endarterectomy. <laughs> 
That's great to hear. Can we just talk for a few minutes about your illness? I know you were you were faced with some illness that probably changed the way you look at patients and how you are as a doctor. Well, no question. Uh, when I uh, shortly after I moved to Los Angeles, about a year and a half into it, I developed a nodule under my uh, nipple. It was you know it was just an interesting finding you know in the shower one morning and and. After a month or two, I showed it to one of my good friends who's a great surgeon. And he said, ah, it's probably a little gynecomastia from your antihypertensive. Whenever you got a minute, we'll take it out. And of course, I never had a minute and the thing didn't change. And six months later, I remember saying to myself, boy, it wasn't that smart not to go through having this out because it's just obviously some benign whatever. And then one day I got out of the shower. I was at, at a gym at the time and I saw that I had nipple retraction. And I said, boy, I may be a vascular surgeon, but I know that's not good. So I went in and they biopsied it. And sure enough, it was, uh, it was adenocarcinoma of the breast without any family history, without any risk factors and out of nowhere. And uh, the irony of it was I was supposed to go down to the University of South Florida to give the AOA lecture on finding fulfillment and work and life uh, the next day. And I said, well, shit, I'm not going to. I'm not going to just disappoint my friends, you know, that I, I agreed to do it. So I got on the plane and flew down and gave this inspiring, hopeful lecture about finding fulfillment, knowing that when I got off the plane coming home, I was going to have a mastectomy. And it was, it was again, one of these classic surgical things that people like us do, right? And, and to show my insensitivity, I left my wife back in Los Angeles, you know, because I didn't want to inconvenience her. So she knows her husband's got cancer. He's off in Florida. And, you know, neither of us could process it together. And I just basically went into a denial mode. I said, I'll get done what I need to get done. But I got I have this obligation to give this lecture. So I came back and, and got a mastectomy and, and the nodes were negative. Uh, because it was aggressive tumor and because I was young and because I was who I was, they said, well, we got to throw the kitchen sink at it. So I had uh, triple chemotherapy and radiation. You know, it was an incredible experience of which, as horrible as it was, the outcome was much more positive than negative. I uh, obviously came to uh, so appreciate the ordeal that patients go through. I understood and dealt with what it meant for my own longevity and mortality. I was so gratified by the, the love and kindness that I received from so many people that it was a life-affirming experience. And now that it's 12, 13 years in the past, it looks even better. But, you know, the rationale that I used was they told me I had a 10% mortality uh, from the breast cancer, 10% risk of recurrence. And I figured, okay, but there are a lot of other things that could get me too, right? I don't go around worrying about my risk of pancreatic cancer or my risk of, you know, anything else. And, and this is just another slight increase in risk that we all manage as we, as we get older. I've been extremely, um, I don't know, in a funny way, grateful to have that experience because it unquestionably, you know, made me uh, see life through a patient's perspective. You know, when, when I was a vascular surgeon and told people they had a 90% chance of survival, I thought I was giving them really good news when they were here and they had a 10% chance of death. And, and that never came home to me quite as clearly until I had had that experience. Yeah, I think it's really fascinating to think about how patients look at those odds and numbers and how we look at them. And my wife's done a lot of work on this, but it can be so incredibly different. You wrote in one article, at least, that you remember 
I mean, you obviously know a lot about medicine, although cancer may not be your specialty, but you still remember as a patient kind of listening to the words your doctor was saying and trying to read the nuance. Are they being positive? Are they negative? And it makes me realize patients might listen to us in ways that we might not always realize, right? I mean, that's always the strange thing about being a doc and you're like, I'm doing this case, but then I'm going to go get lunch or I'm going out tonight. And for them, it's the absolute biggest thing in their life. But have you thought about that? Yeah, absolutely. So I, 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 in, in one of the articles, I, I relate this because it's just such a great example of a unintended consequence. I was getting a colonoscopy a couple of years after my breast cancer. And one of the senior gastroenterologists was doing it. And when he got done, he said, well, if we're both around in five years, well, let's do it again. <laughs> and, you know, he was just being playful and, and funny. And, you know, and here I'm, I'm really trying to decide whether I'm going to be around in five years or not, right? The, the other uh, change in perspective was joking around you know, you and I both like to use humor in our interactions with people. But, you know, humor just isn't good when somebody's got a life-threatening problem. It, it, you know, uh, there are very few people in which that's going to be effective in lowering their, their you know, they want you to be uh, quite, quite serious, right? And there's, there is a place for humor. We all know it. But you have to be very circumspect. Uh, <laughs> I'll never forget when I was a resident. Uh, one, uh, me and one of my resident colleagues were walking down the hall laughing about something. And a nurse came up to and says, you guys shouldn't be laughing. There are people dying around here. And she was obviously irritated by our youthful exuberance, but, but she did have a point. You know, I mean, people traveling in the elevators in hospitals are going to see family members who are very, very sick. And if they see a bunch of doctors joking around and laughing, it just doesn't work. For them. Yeah, I think that's right. I love humor, but you've got to get that balance right. And I think once the patients come through a transplant, that can be a great, and you've developed a rapport, that can be a good time. But sometimes going in is not the right time for it, uh, depending on your field. So before we end, I have to, I hope you have just a couple minutes. I have to bring up the whole fugitive Harrison Ford thing, if that's okay. So when I came to Chicago, I did notice, if I'm correct, that your loops said Dr. Richard Kimball on them. And it has to be one of the coolest things about you that you are in The Fugitive. You actually have a line in the movie. I went back and watched it. It's so cool. I think a number of the surgeons I know were in the OR scene. Uh, I believe maybe Jim McKenzie was in there as well. But how did that happen? And then, and then you became friends with Harrison Ford, I assume, after that? Or did you know him already? No, it was uh, it was quite a an amazing uh, uh, thing, and and it had a huge impact on my life, as it turns out. But they were uh, shooting the fugitive, but unfortunately, the screenwriter that was originally attached to the movie was pharmacologically incapable of of completing the script. But they had lined up Tommy Lee and and Harrison Ford to do it, and the director Andy Davis, who's also a good friend of mine now was from Chicago and wanted to shoot it in Chicago. So they all were assembling in Chicago and they found at the last minute they had no script. <laughs> so they brought in a fantastic uh, screenwriter, Jeb Stewart, who wrote Die Hard and a few other things. And Jeb was brought in to, to fix the script. And through a friend of a friend, they had asked me to show them the University of Chicago as a potential site to film. And I took the assistant director around and he apparently got back to his room and said, boy, you guys should really meet this surgeon at the University of Chicago because he reminds me of who Richard Kimball might might be. One uh, 
Sunday night, I got this call and they said, would you mind meeting with some movie people Monday morning, Monday afternoon or something? I said, sure. I thought it'd be more assistant directors and stuff. And I was in the operating room finishing up an aorta bifemoral and Velma, my secretary, called me and she said, you won't believe who's in your office. Get it, you better get up here. So after we got done, I, I came upstairs and there sitting in my office was Harrison Ford, Andy Davis, and the screenwriter, Jeb Stewart. And they wanted they wanted to talk about the movie. So we talked about it for about an hour. And then I took him on a tour of the hospital. And actually, Harrison and I really weren't getting along too well because it, like, it was my hospital. And he somehow thought he was an important movie star. So we had a, a ego, ego conflict. And I got home and I told my wife, I said, you know, you'll never guess what happened to me today. And I said, I met these guys. And but I didn't think I got along with them too well. So who knows what's going to happen? And just as I finished that sentence, the phone rang and it was Harrison Ford. And he said, look, you know, I sort of feel like we got off on the wrong foot. Are you free for dinner tonight? So we, the three of us, uh, the three of them plus me went down to Gaylord, India, in downtown Chicago, and we closed the place up and we plotted out the movie on a napkin. I changed the neurosurgeon into a vascular surgeon. And we came up with the reason that Harrison Ford was being targeted was that he had discovered, uh, unbeknownst to him, a complication of a drug and statins were just coming out. So I made it a statin. And Jeb went back to the uh, Four Seasons and started pounding out the screenplay. And Harrison had nothing to do for two weeks. So I said, well, why don't you come to the operating room and learn how to be a vascular surgeon? Oh my God. These were simpler days, I think. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. <clears throat> and I was chief of surgery. And, you know, in the early 1990s, you could do whatever you wanted. Came, to, I taught him how to scrub and he came to the operating room every day. And Mackenzie was the fellow and we would do surgery and, and he'd go back to the hotel around noon to work out and eat. And he would call up in the afternoon to see how his patient was doing. And, <laughs> and then you had to give him updates on his patients. <laughs> And then, uh, and then at night, every once in a while during the shooting, uh, he'd come over for beers and, and tuck my kids in. And, and uh, the guy from Warner Brothers came up to me and said, what are we paying you for this? And I said, look, you know, Harrison Ford's tucking my kids in every night. That's, that's just fine. You know, I, I'm cool. Which was like about the stupidest thing I ever could have possibly done. The long and the short of it was, you know, uh, after, you know, sort of helping to craft the plot and, and do all the medical dialogue, they decided that if I wasn't in the movie, uh, nobody would know that I had anything to do with it. So they created that scene. And I shot that scene at two in the morning after a take back on a thoracobdominal aneurysm. And I, you know, felt like hell and I wasn't going to do it. And Harrison called me up and said, look, if you're not in the movie, nobody will know anything about this. He says, you, why don't you come out and give it a shot? Right. So the reason this was so important, and not only did the movie make hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars, and I got next to nothing, I did get a Screen Actors Guild uh, card. My college girlfriend was sitting in her art gallery one day, and one of her girlfriends came in and said, did you hear your old boyfriend was in The Fugitive? And she went to the movie theater, and she saw her old boyfriend uh, in this snippet from The Fugitive, and she called me up just to see how life was going and you know, I was going through a divorce, but didn't tell her that. And uh, she said, well, you know, if you're ever in Philadelphia, why don't you stop by the art gallery? You know, 25 years later, we could just say hi. So sure enough, six months later, I was in Philadelphia and uh, stopped by. And it turned out that we were both going through divorces. And we've now been married for 23 years. 
So, oh uh, my God, I did not know that. That's yeah. and, and was and, Harrison Ford at your wedding, or <laughs> no? It wasn't at the wedding, but when we got back together, we our first vacation was to Harrison's ranch in Jackson Hole. I called him up before I got there. I said, Harrison, you understand that I'm separated, and you know, I'm I'm seeing a, a new girl, my girlfriend from uh, college, and he said, Well, why don't you come up to the ranch? He says, I'll get you back together. <laughs> Have you? That's incredible. I did not know that part. Did you? Have you ever gone up in his helicopter? Yes, uh, indeed. And uh, we've had some interesting experiences. And when I turned, I think it was sixty or sixty-five. I forget which. We went out, and my friend Dick Carl, who you may know, who's one of the greatest guys in in surgery and also a really accomplished pilot, was visiting. So we and our wives went to Harrison's hangar, and he brought out this. Rolls-Royce engine helicopter, fantastic plane. And he said, well, you want to go up to Santa Barbara? So we piled into the helicopter and we went up the coast to Santa Barbara for a, you know, $2,000 hamburger, you know, with all the jet fuel. So coming back, Harrison said to me, he said, do you think that, do you think the girls are doing okay with this? And I said, absolutely. They're, they're just fine in the back of the helicopter. He said, well, why don't we do a little bit more daring uh, return to Los Angeles? So we did. We went through the hills of Malibu and stuff and banked off the hills and whatever. And I just kept thinking if we crashed, it was going to be Harrison Ford crashes and two doctors and their wives also involved. I wouldn't get it yes. for sure. That's the kind of thing I think about that. I need to be the most famous person on every plane I go on because I don't want <laughs> that fate. Now, now I, I say with your you know excellent book and and uh, your excellent reviews, I think I think you got a, a few planes where you could be the most important. <laughs> yeah, it depends where I'm flying, but it's been so great talking to you. There's so much we didn't get into uh, your whole life running Cedar Sinai and your involvement in so many other things. But I feel like this was a great time to catch up and understand like what makes you work. You've just been a wonderful you know role model and mentor to me and some of my friends and my wife and. Uh, we think about you a lot. Well, I can assure you, uh, Josh, that that uh, the pleasure I've had in your and Gretchen's and other people's uh, success is fundamentally the best thing about my career. And I'm very proud of you guys and delighted that, you know, uh, you've had such a great life together. And, and uh, it's really been my pleasure chatting with you. Thanks, Bruce. And we'll get you back on to do your next, your, your LA chapter in the future. Sounds great. <laughs> I'll look forward to seeing you soon. And don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, Podbean, and Stitcher. Invite your friends to listen in if you have any. And if you're feeling generous, rate us on your favorite podcast app, but only if you're going to give us a good rating. It really does make a huge difference. Thank you so much. The Surgery Set is a production from the Department of Surgery at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. This episode was produced by J.P. Swenson and me, Josh Mesrich. Quentin Tarantino did not direct it. It was recorded by Josh Mesrich and edited by J.P. Swenson. Visit us at surgery.wisc.edu, where you can find links to Grand Rounds, free CME credits, and more. You can also check out the UW School of Medicine and Public Health video library for a wide range of medical education resources at videos.med.wisc.edu. Give our Facebook page a like and follow us on Twitter at Wisc Surgery. Please feel free to let us know how we're doing. Rate and review us on your podcast app and don't hesitate to let us know any topics you'd like us to cover. Until next time, from all of us here at the set, thank you for listening. 
You are likely a better person than you were just 30 minutes ago. You are very welcome. <laughs>